Oh, hello there, everyone. It is... What day is it? Uh, it is Wednesday, May 30th, 2018. And this is the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat. My name is Luke Thomas. I'm the host of this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. We'll go for about ooh, 85 minutes and change today. Talking about the latest and greatest in mixed martial arts. The retirement of Michael Bisping, UFC Utica preview... UFC Liverpool look back. Anything else in between combat sports related or maybe even not? Best place to get your question is going to be on uh, MMAfighting.com where this window is embedded. You can also shoot me a tweet at LThomasNews or use the hashtag ChatRappers last 15 minutes. I will get to the Twitter machine. Now, a few housekeeping notes, and I wouldn't bring this up to be quite honest with you because I don't know how relevant it is, which is to say it's probably not relevant at all. Um, but, you know, you guys on social media if I post about them, there is nothing but a series of responses that continuously harangue, annoy, purposely troll, uh, and otherwise badger me, uh, insult me, or whatever it can be. Anything about Real Madrid, anything. So I just thought, you know, we should start off the chat today with a healthy reminder about who uh, the kings of Europe are, and the kings of world soccer slash world football. I just want everyone to know, this is for everybody who every season tells me it's luck. This is for everybody who every season, I'll tweet that Real Madrid is going to have a great game, and you'll tweet me some picture of your stupid favorite player, whether it's, I mean, you pick it. It's Gigi Buffon, it's Salah, it's God, I mean, Antoine Griezmann, or whoever it is, whoever it is. All of that added up to nothing. It added up to nothing, and every year, this is the result that you get. This is the result you deserve. This is the result, and ladies and gentlemen, and the sound, in the words of Agent Smith, of inevitability. Take a nice, long, hard, joyous look at it, because ain't it grand? Back to back to back championship. So every time, if you were one of those jokers, who is out there taunting me? De nada. De nada. Todo es para ti. All right. That's for you. Now, second of all, if I can say, if you watched the MMA Beat a few weeks back, I had mentioned that I had missed out on a Kanye concert. Uh, oh, audio has static. Okay, hold on. Check, check, one, two. There we go. All right. Anyway, you saw my hater-ass Real Madrid thing. There you go. Fix the audio. I tried using that new mic. This is plugged into a different system, but as you can see, I can't get the system to work. I will set this up here in just a second. That's one part of what I want to get to today, as we'll get to it here. Hang on. The other part is about that beef. Between you know who, Pusha T, 
and Kanye. Yes? No, what am I saying? Pusha T and Kanye. Pusha T and... God damn it. Having a bit of a clumsy start here, aren't we? And Drake. I want to point out in the MMA beat a couple of weeks ago that I shouted out Pusha T because a buddy of mine went to a Kanye concert. And I was bitter at him because I had missed it. Hang on. And now it turns out that all my years of Drake hating and Pusha T support, however coincidental, worked out a little bit in my favor. Did it not? Unlike the start of the technological difficulties for today's live chat. Be that as it may, I take great pride in that fact because while I know I am old and hardly the arbiter of anything cool, it nevertheless warms the cockles of my heart to know that if you're just one of those people who hates old hip hop because, or hates new hip hop just because you're old, well, then you're just old. Uh, but um, I'll say this, the the hip hop that I grew up with, and I'm old and white and lame, and I'm perfectly content with admitting that, nevertheless put a greater emphasis on MC skills, right? So when you go up against one, like Pusha T, things go badly for you, right? Drake, I don't listen to rappers who sing ODB being perhaps the lone exception. That's not what I do. I don't really derive a whole lot of pleasure from it. Uh, I like rappers who can rap. In fact, to the point where I have commissioned some artwork. This is from an artist up here on the East Coast. And I wanted to show this to you. Now, this is not Pusha T. However, there it is, ladies and gents. That, ladies and gentlemen, is an MC who can rhyme. This is Sean Price. This is actually done by the artist himself. There you are. Yes. Look at that, huh? Now, the Pittsburgh Pirates hat kind of kills me, but nevertheless, Sean Price, boot camp's best. Give him another two pencil, watch him take the test, shake your set, break your neck, competitors flee. Who the fuck rhymes better than me? There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, very nice. Very nicely done. So I had to start today's live chat with technological difficulties, as we always do. It's part of a tradition around here. But nevertheless, as a message to the kids today, I'll wrap this up later. Listen to MCs who can rhyme. Because in the end, it will come back and pay dividends for them. All right. There you go. Fixed our issues. And now we're on to the live chat. Let's see. MMA Hall of Fame, Luke. If there was a real MMA Hall of Fame, kind of like the NFL, MLB, blah, 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 which of these fighters do you think would have earned their place in the hall? Musasi, no, because he's still active. Sarah, no, because I'm not sure about MLB, but I know for like NBA, yeah. Well, um, Sarah, maybe, but I know for some some of them you have to be out of the league or not competitive for three years. So Sarah would qualify in that sense. Verdun wouldn't qualify, nor would Woodley, and last but not least, Michael Bisping, nor would he qualify based on those rules. Now, if you're asking me, once that period of uh, ineligibility has passed, would they be Musasi? You know, never winning a UFC title kind of hurts. I don't know. I have to think about that. Let's see what else he does in his career. Sarah, for me, would be a no. Um, Verdum, probably a yes. Woodley, I don't know. I'll say to be com- to be continued and Bisping a yes. Now, I know some people have uh, some fond memories of Sarah, and I'm totally okay with that. 
but I just want to pull up his resume. Um, I'm one of these guys who, when it comes to my opinion on the Hall of Fame, any kind of Hall of Fame, what it should really be about is what they accomplished over the longevity of their career. And certainly, Metzer had some pretty amazing accomplishments, 1999, Pan Am gold medalist, uh, and then the CBJJ, but not the IBJJF. He was a 2000 world champion, and of course, uh, he won a silver Abu Dhabi 2001 in your 66 to 76 kilo category. But this was his record. It was 11 and 7, which I don't hold against him as some kind of terrible thing. It's not. In fact, of course, he had some really nice wins on there. His wins included people you'd never heard of. But then, Eves Edwards, which is a big win. Uh, I can't read this effer's name. Kelly Delonte. Don't know. Jeff Curran. Ivan Menhivar. Uh, Chris Lytle, George St. Pierre, and then Frank Trigg, right? So those are some great wins, obviously, some pretty spectacular wins. But to me, that's not really Hall of Fame worthy. Now, I know he's going to go in the pioneer wing. And look, the UFC can put in whoever they, they want in there. For me, with Matt Serra, um, I do think that like you, ha- you should have a period of ineligibility because um, if you just induct somebody right after their career is over, there's like, really sentimental feelings about them, which can sway people if they're borderline. So you put a little distance between them. Um, and what ends up happening is you can have a little more of a sober reflection over time. We don't have any of these periods of ineligibility, so people just go right into it, which is kind of weird. So there's that. Um but that aside, even if you grant that, I, I don't know what exactly on this list would make him worthy of being in there. He lost to Penn, Shoney Carter, Dean Thomas, Carl Parisian, St. Pierre, Hughes, and then Chris Lytle in his final fight. Um, again, I'm not here to say that the record is bad by any stretch of the imagination. He's done so much for MMA, but if we're just looking at a body of work with record-setting achievement, I don't know that you can make a particularly strong case for it. You can make a case that he had some fantastic wins. Um, had some fantastic moments, is a beloved personality, is an incredible coach. He's probably an even better coach than he is a fighter, and he was a very good fighter, so that says a lot. Like, there's a lot of things about him as a martial artist that you have to have the highest respect for, but if you want your Hall of Fame to have standards, to me, you have to have some of these guardrails in place where you're creating this distance between when they're done with their career and when you can induct them. And you also, to me, have to look over the huge body of work uh, and then decide, is there enough achievement in totality here to warrant it relative to their peers? That will be different for people, but to me, when when you have a record of 11 and 7, yeah, fought nothing but tough guys, it's not that you can't say incredibly nice things about him. It's not that you can't have high praise for him. It's not that you can't be in awe of some of the things that he did, including that St. Pierre win. I'll remember exactly where I was. I was at a Buffalo Wild Wings in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Uh, no, excuse me, excuse me, Hard Times Cafe. Right off of Route 3, I know exactly where I was, and I sat there in shock. I com- couldn't believe what had just happened. I was amazed. I was amazed. So all of those things matter, but in terms of a total body of work, I, I you know, to me it's like, you know, St. Pierre, he's an obvious example, but he has a body of work, right? Like, you know, there should be a period of ineligibility for him as well once he's done, but it's almost a formality with him. Um, your mileage may vary. But that's how it works for me. And then the other ones that you had mentioned, let me pull that up here. Uh, Woodley still active, Verdum still active, but some of the things he did at heavyweight might sway me. And then Musasi, I don't know. I have to think about it. I have to think about it a little bit. Um, all right, but I think the audio is better now. So I see some people complaining. 
just just one more time if the audio was messed up i i, I want to make sure i didn't cheat anybody <laughs> i'm being a really poor winner there's nothing like the joy of being a really poor winner this is for uh danny segura the world's biggest hater and yes i know my forehead's a little messed up i was face planting last night in jujitsu here you go right there everybody this fruit on uh okay Luke, we need to talk about Michael Bisping. All right. What do you want to talk about? Uh, favorite Michael Bisping fight? Ooh, that's a good question. Favorite Michael Bisping fight? Well, let's pull them up. I was looking at his record yesterday. You want to talk about somebody who was in the trenches? My God. Look at his record. Let me read you his UFC fights. Forget that he had a career a little bit before that. Here are his UFC fights. Josh Haynes, Eric Red Schaefer, a good black belt, by the way. Elvis Sinisek, King of Rock and Rumble, Matt Hamill, Rashad Evans, Chainsaw Charles McCarthy, Jason Day. Y'all remember Jason Day had some buzz back in the day. Chris Lieben, Dan Henderson, Dennis Kang, Vanderlei Silva, Dan Miller, Yoshihiro Akiyama, Jorge Rivera, Jason Miller, Chael Sonnen, Brian Stan, Vitor Belfort, Alan Belcher, Jim Kennedy, Kong Lee, Luke Rockhold, uh, CB Dalloway, Talos Leitches, Anderson Silva, Luke Rockhold, Dan Henderson, George St. Pierre, and Kelvin Gastelum, my lord. You could say he didn't take the Romero fight, and I even I gave him some stuff for that. I gave him some shit personally for it, but in the end, I don't know how you can't look at that resume and say anything other than excuse me, I don't know how you can say it and, and say anything other than that is an incredible body of work. And yes, there's some losses along the way, but as you know, there were some extenuating circumstances with some of them. Um he got revenge on a couple of them. You know, so to me, it's like incredibly impressive. He did achieve a UFC title. He did defend it. Um, you know, he lost it obviously as well. And that Kelvin Gastelum fight was really inadvised, but he was doing that through injury, through God knows what kind of eyesight he had. So even if you want to make some claims about this one, that he, there's not enough achievement in the body of work, even I'd be open to that. I would not agree with that. I think being the first UK UFC champion kind of tells you what the position was that he came from and how he's important to that part of the um, the world. If you want to put him in the pioneer wing, I'd be okay with that. But there's just a more achievement, I think, happening there as a fighter that matters. He doesn't have some of the stuff as a coach that, for example, that Matisera has. He doesn't have as much as a, uh, you know, a um, jujitsu or sort of other martial art competitor that Matisera does. And I understand that that's part of the the, the uh, appealing legacy of Sarah. But for me, the, the, the larger body of work, and by the way, uh, shots to Mike Bond over at MMA Junkie, puts together a stats list of all the things that you can say about uh, his career, Michael Bisping's career. It's its incredible. It's incredible. Now, you were asking something a little bit different, I believe. Uh, favorite Michael Bisping fight, right? I would say mm, maybe the Dennis Kang fight. Michael Bisping's kind of incredible, right? Um, he didn't have back-to-back -back losses until his last two, the very two last fights of his career which tells you a lot. I mean, I have so many fond memories of the things he had done as a fighter. So for example, he gets, and I've made videos about this and I've talked about it ad nauseum. If you watch this chat or any of my other work, then you know you've heard me say this before, but the but it's the reality. His superpower was not that he had amazing Demi and Maya Jiu-Jitsu, although it was very good, or that he had the best wrestling, although it was very good, or that he had the best striking or the best cardio. All of them were very, very good, but they were, and then the cardio maybe, but the rest of them, of the skills, they were all high level, but they weren't necessarily some kind of game changer relative to his peers. But what he had 
almost as a sickness in a way was this ability to simply forget. If you're a quarterback in the NFL and you throw an interception, they tell you to have a very short memory because you got to get right back out there and begin to throw. You have to make those reads. You have to make those throws. You have to commit to sitting in the pocket, taking the hit, and everything that has to happen. That is Michael Bisping to a goddamn T. I've never seen a guy who was less bothered by traumatic events or seemingly traumatic events than him. You know, when we talk about Ronda Rousey not having the same kind of mental fortitude as a fighter, it sounds like we're being super insulting to Ronda Rousey, but we're actually not. We're not being that way at all. Ronda Rousey was um, understandably shook by the things that had happened. You would imagine that somebody who gets viciously KO'd like that then follows it up with another vicious KO might not have an appetite for this in the same way they did before. And we get kind of lost in that space because we see guys like Michael Bisping come out and have the same kinds of appetite. It's highly, 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 highly unusual. Highly unusual. Um, and for me to be able to take that kind of traumatic KO that would have mentally crippled other fighters after Dan Henderson to come back out there and put it on Dennis King, who had some hype at the time and was a very, very good fighter and you know physically looked the part and everything, is just tells you the story of who he is. Tells you the story of who he is. He loses to Chael Sonnen, by the way, that was controversial. Came back and beat Brian Stan. Lost to Vitor Belfort. Came back and beat Alan Belcher. Lost to Tim Kennedy. Came back and beat Kung Lee. Lost to Luke Rockhold. And then came back and beat Dalloway, Lychee, Silva, uh, Rockhold, and Henderson again. And by the way, in that Silva win, he got dropped at the end of that third round. Go back and look at the numbers for that fight. Statistically, his best round was his fourth. It is after every one of those traumatic events, every one of those setbacks, after every one of those losses, he got right back on the horse. And he had that period there from 2012 to about 2014 where it was, you know, give and take a little bit. But the point being is he just never quit. He kept swinging the axe, kept swinging the axe, kept swinging the axe. So I would say maybe the Dennis Kang fight, the second Luke Rockhold, or excuse me, yes, the second Luke Rockhold fight obviously is pretty special as well. Um, what's another good one that he had? The Jason Miller fight was kind of weird. Brian Stan fight was close. The Kung Lee fight was interesting, you know, because Kung Lee looked like a million bucks coming into that fight. Um, there's a few, but it's mostly just these moments that he has. He gets sat down. He dusts himself off. He doesn't wallow in self-pity, and he just goes. He's the least self-pitying fighter I've ever seen, I think. Never an ounce of self-pity. And if he does, almost in jest, like, there might be some kind of human inevitability to sadness after a loss, and he might indulge it for an evening or a drink and then right back on it. You just you don't find people like that. You don't. I'm sorry. Not after – everyone can dust themselves off after some kind of a setback, but not like this. Not to just be in a position where his turn finally came. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Shout out to Floyd Sr. Real talk, though, the Kung Lee fight comes to mind for me, this person writes. Yeah, Kung Lee was goes, Kung Lee was a washed-up 42-year-old man. They're going to do this to his resume. They're going to go through this and say these losses mean a lot and these wins mean very little. This is the inevitable revision that happens. Kung Lee was older at the time, but he was still pretty good. In fact, Kung Lee coming into that contest, I think he had suffered a few losses ahead of it. Let's see. Uh, no, he actually was on a two-fight win streak, although he had some time off, the Cote and the Franklin fight. Obviously, it had some other issues, uh, and they looked like a million bucks coming into it. So washed up seems like a bit of a overgeneralization, in fact, outright nonsense. So no, I don't agree with that. Uh, I want to bring up something here very quickly that's listed in the comments. Reebok pay, UFC promotional guideline compliance pay is a total joke, this person writes. 
Uh, Luke, did you see that Darren Till got a cool extra five grand for his last fight in Reebok pay? How insane is that for a main event fighter on FS1? Even crazier to me since he was fighting in his hometown, which really should have added value. What is your feeling from talking to fighters? Have they simply given up on the idea they, that they should be earning serious money through sponsorships? Or are they still quite angry with the UFC and more likely to consider free agency because of this policy? Um, I don't get the idea that there's like a mass desire to seek free agency as a consequence of this. And frankly, I'm running out of sympathy for them. To be, to be perfectly honest with you, it's not that I can't look at this and say that this is clearly insane, that there must be all kinds of money being left on the table for these guys, particularly you're right in a case like Darren Till where they're in Liverpool, where um, where um, you have this, not merely your headlining FS1 card, but in a very special context where you are from Liverpool. It is the first time the UFC is in Liverpool. You are in the main event. You would have to imagine locally even uh, there would probably be all kinds of sponsorship opportunities beyond just sort of what the national, international um, companies might have been willing to to provide, and and he got none of that. I, I certainly understand that. It's not that I don't have sympathy for that on some level, but this is not the first time we've had this conversation. It's not even close, and I don't know how he could get the five. I don't know what the new compliance math is. It's all insane to me, but these guys, um, they don't want to do anything about it. They don't want to do anything about it so far. We'll see what happens with Project Spearhead. Um I understand it must be very difficult for them. I have expressed heartfelt sorrow for them for years at this point, but I don't know really what to tell you guys here anymore. I said it a few tweets ago. I'll say it again. The cavalry is not coming to save them. There is no cavalry coming to save them. Either they are going to figure it out and either get a better deal for themselves, or they're going to work together to realize we can put in some basic guarantees um, and ways to augment our pay. Used to be that sponsorship was a way to offset low fighter pay. Now what are they doing? Couldn't tell you. Couldn't tell you, but I don't have a ton of sympathy like I used to because it's not like the media hasn't talked about this to death. We have given this as much coverage as we possibly can. It's not like anybody's confused about it anymore. Do they want to do something about it? I don't know, but it's not going to change until they do. So I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say about it anymore. If they don't want to fix it. I'm, you know, I'm sorry that it goes like this, but. If you don't want to do anything about your problems, how how is the rest of the world supposed to care about them? Um, someone has to be somebody and do something about it. And who that's going to be, it, it's easier said than done. I recognize that too. But at some level, you just get to the end of the questions and you say, you can fire up a million excuses for why nothing happens here. And many of them might be quite valid. But certainly doing something in aggregate must be better than not. Especially when you're leaving, you know, I mean, look at this TV deal. <laughs> you know, who knows what kind of revenue they would have gotten from that. But let's just say conservatively, ten mil, uh, of a uh, hundred million, hundred fifty million, right? So imagine that was the all they could get, uh, and that's still split between six hundred fighters. They don't want to do it. They don't want the money. So. Okay. Judging in MMA, Thompson Till yet again vindicated, did it? Your points about the imperfections of the current MMA judging system. Oh, right. I know what you mean. Uh, look, if you were given free reign to completely overhaul the judging system in MMA, what would it look like? Would you change the number of judges? 
Would they all be cage side, blah, blah, blah. Personally, I think a boxing-based 10-point muscle system is an ill fit for MMA that negatively affects grapplers. Um, someone says, Luke, do you get tired of answering MMA judging questions every single week? N yes and no. This person writes, uh, MMA judging is bad. It will not be fixed anytime soon. Let's move on. Well, that's definitely true. Uh, as I've been over before, everyone was like, we, these commissions, we needed them to fix MMA, right? Well, now you're stuck with them. So good luck with that. Uh, but to answer the question, if I had to pick without really doing a bunch of work to see what it would look like for the UFC, because I do think it might make a difference, uh, I would go with the one system. We sort of judge a fight as a whole. Uh, at the very end, you just sort of put in one. I had this, uh, this I don't know if you want to call it a... Um, eureka moment I don't, I don't know if that is large enough to qualify but um i was thinking about this for the 10 point must system why is it that after every fight if you're an mma media member you know exactly what i'm talking about after every fight no you and i can come to a disagreement so for example even if we all totally understood how the rules were employed and even if we both totally understood how to score, and even if we both totally were qualified to make a, 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 an expert opinion here, let's say you scored it for Till, let's say I scored it for Thompson. Okay, okay, that's fine, right? Like, I, I can live with it. I honestly can, and I think there are ways to get there, as I mentioned on the Monday Morning Analyst, in either way, even by following the correct protocol. What always bothers me is that when people come to a conclusion that in the end, yes, you can make a case for Till, you can make a case for Thompson, but they do it not by adhering to protocol, but the rules actually say and how you have to score. And it happens, it's been happening for f as long as I can remember. Every year, people always say, oh, well, maybe the judges changed their minds and were swayed by the last drop that Till had over Thompson, right? But that wouldn't make sense if, for example, I mean, I realize they didn't, but you could imagine judges having it four rounds, or at least the first three rounds, for Thompson, so it wouldn't matter if he got dropped in the fifth, unless they wanted to score at ten eight, in which case it would be a draw. So, so no, I don't, I don't understand why that would sway them. And what that tells you is that people don't understand how fights are scored, um, and they don't understand that what we have done is how when you look at a fight, what are you looking at? You are looking at the strategic, tactical, and impactful things that are happening. Yes. So, for example, you are looking at Till's pressure and how it's working. You are looking at his footwork and his angles and how that's working. You're seeing him, how many attacks he throws, how many land, how damaging they were. You're looking at his head movement. You're looking at his footwork. You're looking at his feints and his fakes. Um, you're looking at his shot selection. You're looking at who's behind the two black lines, who's doing the pressuring. And even then, we all both know, even if you're getting pressured, it could be a cat and mouse game where you want to be pressured so you can counter. There's a lot of different ways to look at it, but you're at least paying attention to those kinds of things. We all know, as I've made a point of noting on this podcast, the majority of the action, because guys are pushing out from the center, the majority of the action happens along the fence line or it happens just outside the two black lines. That's really the sweet spot of MMA. It's where most of the stuff happens. Not all of it, but a pretty significant portion of it. Yeah. So you're always looking to see who's in that space, who's not in that space, how things change, how they don't, who's going for takedowns, what they look like. You're evaluating everything in totality in real time. I so say your brain is processing it. You can't, you, you, in real time, you're not compartmentalizing it. But judging, is done through compartmentalization, right? In two different ways. Number one, 
per round. You're not judging the fight by the 10-point must system as a whole. You're judging it, what happened in that round? What happened in that round? Forget about it. That round, forget about it. That round, forget about it. That round. And none of them have to line up with the other one. Each one is its own individual election. Who did you vote for? Who made the most compelling argument? That's it. And that argument, this is the second nature of it, is only a function at first of effective striking and grappling. And if that is even, and if and only if that is even, then you drop to effective aggression. And there should be a winner there. And if and only if there is no aggression that you can discern being greater than the other one in terms of being effective aggression and meeting the criteria they're in, then you go to effective cage control. And if and only if that's an even, then you can give it a 10-10 round, right? But that's not how we score in our minds. When we're watching a fight, what are we looking for? Everything. Everything matters. And so I think you need to have a scoring criteria and a scoring system that somehow matches how we perceive a fight, how we take it in. It has to match that kind of reality. And asking audiences to compartmentalize per round and then compartmentalize through judging criteria and where you only do it on this tiered system where if there's a tie, you're looking for the series of different tiebreakers down the line, I don't know that this is a very effective way to get the public to understand what's happening. Now, maybe you want to score a fight that isn't necessarily what the public understands and just what's better for evaluating the winner. Is this system really the best one to evaluate the winner? I mean, there's still an open question there. So to me, it's like whatever scoring criteria you want to come up with, we can come up with a bunch of different ideas. Do you want a half point system? I can entertain that. Do you want open scoring? Some I saw Dean Thomas was being really vocal about wanting some open scoring. Hey, man, I'm not against open scoring. I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other, but I'm not against it. And, and to me, I think that my hunch, my hunch intuitively is that we should match the way in which we perceive a fight. We should have judging criteria that matches that, that uh, internalization. That that experience, that the experiential nature of taking in a fight, it should match that. And the way we do it doesn't. It tries to segment out everything. And I don't think folks will either understand or care to do it that way. And frankly, I can't really blame them. Ten years in, I still wonder why after every controversial decision, people say, well, maybe that, that uppercut in the third round swayed them. How would that even matter if they dropped the first two? Like it's It, it, it just tells you that they... And you can say, well, the public should know better. Well, uh, the public will know better when you make it easier to know better. I mean, at some level, you can accuse people of ignorance outright. Yeah, but this one, I don't think you can. I don't think you can. I think you need to make criteria that just help us understand better what's happening. And that's why I like the one system. But until the UFC decides to do something about it, we are just having fun on this podcast, quite literally. So. Uh, okay, a round of applause for Michael Bisping. And what are our most memorable personal encounters with the Count? Bisping announced his retirement this week. What will be his legacy, highs and lows, influence on the sport and, and outside the cage? What are the best memories and anecdotes from your personal encounters with him? Well, he got bitter at me when I took that picture of him and Andy Bravo. That was funny. Uh, he was fine with it in the end. Um I'll tell you this, I, I, I briefly put it out on Twitter as a picture of it uh, from that day. So he was a guest on MMA Uncensored, God, six years ago at this point. That was 2012, right? So six years. Fuck, I'm old. Uh, 
time. I mean, I can't believe it's been six years since that show was on the air. Okay. Um, in any event. Uh, so we're sitting there and, uh, God, what is the, I don't have the actual, um, um, I don't have the exact wording, but he said something to the effect of, you know, uh, I've sparred Luke Rockhold and let's just say I'm the unofficial strike force middleweight champion. And that set off one of the better, if not the best rivalry of his career, certainly one of the more impactful ones. And which is great. We all know the stories there with Rockhold in the back and forth and everything. But the, uh, the best one is uh, after we went to commercial, we're sitting there. He was to my left. So I'm sitting here like this, and he's over here to my left because we're sitting at a round table. It was me, him, I think Craig Carton, and Nate Quarry. And Bisping looks over at me and Nate and goes, yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that. And then he has this moment where he kind of thinks it over for like another beat or two and goes, oh, well, <laughs> and then just starts laughing. Oh, well. It was like he could have sort of he knew that like eh, that sparring was supposed to be a private thing and that it wasn't in the end. And then was just like, well, cats out of the bag. What are you going to do? You know, that's kind of the guy he was. He would he um, hit a big mouth. And I say that as a compliment. Um, he was a fire starter and he was a very uh, a guy who believed in himself and a guy who who always understood the media and always understood the best way to get some media. I won't say always, but certainly for the large portion of his career. And that that's always my favorite. I'll never forget we go to commercial. He's like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have said it. Oh, well. Um, I, I did love that. What do you think his legacy will be? I think his legacy will be exactly what we think it is, which is UK pioneer, guy who went from villain to hero as he became an elder statesman, and a guy who had a deserved reputation for never ducking challenges. And again, I know the Romero thing is weird, but I just feel like his overall body of work pretty much speaks to that. You can't look at that and find a whole lot of holes in terms of who he was supposed to be fighting and when. The low has to be the Dan Henderson fight. The high has to be UFC 199. Influence on the sport. I think it's a guy who, um, you know, we'll see what happens with the next generation of UK fighters, but in terms of uh, influences that I can tell, was just a guy who showed you the value of showmanship and then the value, he was he was both, right? I mean, Michael Bisping was a bridge to two worlds. At the same time, he'd fit, he fits in in this modern world of, of social media trash talk and, and media sound bites and being a personality. He fits in quite well, right? He has no problems navigating that well but at the same time he was an old throwback fighter like hey we need you to fight dan miller okay you know we need you to fight uh whoever okay talos lighties in scotland sure you know all all of that all of that he had no problem with any of that and um and so he was he was a hybrid in many ways or it should tell you at least insofar as the era in which he came from a little bit of head of the head of the curve uh that, that to me is 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 who he is is Musasi the best middleweight in the world? He's got a strong claim. Um, but I do think Whitaker's probably better. So it says, I'm not sure I would pick Musasi against uh, any middleweight. What does that mean? 
Do you think you he could you could make a legitimate case for Musasi as the best middleweight in the world? I don't know if I could. Maybe somebody else could. Why does he want to fight with Rory McDonald? Probably to get maximum attention and pay. I don't know. What do you think of that fight? That fight doesn't do much for me. Uh, I respect Rory, but Musasi is just a lot bigger and really well-rounded like he is. And so if you say that they're equally skilled, size is going to matter there. And so I don't know. I don't know that it does a whole lot for me. It's fun to put these kinds of fights together. And if Rory could beat him, it'd be amazing, right? I, I wouldn't deny it. But I don't know. It doesn't hold, do a whole lot for me. I got to tell you, after Saturday or Friday or whatever it was, the fight that I most want to see is MVP versus Daly. I mean, I look at that fight and I think to myself, Jesus, like you've got a fight in Bellator that could not have, I mean, I don't think the fan base could be more ready for it than they are. And I don't know how well it would sell necessarily, especially outside of the UK, but well, you've got my attention with that one. An organically developing fight. I mean, Chael versus Fedor might be bigger, but Chael versus Fedor is a function of a, a tournament structure that's happening by, not by accident, but by, uh, almost central planning MVP versus daily is just like a collision course. Uh, that's the one I'm interested in. So it says, I think a strong case can be made for Romero as being the best middleweight. Yes, he lost to Whitaker, but any fight on any given night can go either way. Okay. Boy, this is an interesting and insulting question. Huh. All right. Oh, here's Danny Segura hating per use. Can you believe these bums, these Atletico Madrid bums, holding on to the fact that Madrid got third in La Liga this season? Like, yeah, you know, we also got our third of Champions League trophies consecutively. All right, MVP. Is he the Harlem Globetrotter of MMA? Wow, that is insulting. Uh, MVP had another flashy win in Bellator this weekend, but as always, he was crucified, uh, excuse me, criticized for the level of competition he's fighting. Okay, up to now, I'd understand that, but against David Rickles, I don't. He doesn't seem too keen on stepping up in class against a top welterweight in Bellator. The natural way of thinking is that you move up in quality as you outgrow the level you are on. Is an MVP's case, the success formula is to look flashy against lesser opponents, much like the legendary Harlem Globetrotters. I don't know what MVP's career plan is, but do you think it's okay for a talented fighter with lots of potential to just say, I'd rather be flashy and entertaining against a lower level of opposition than to go fight for a title? If not, why shouldn't it? If you were Scott Coker, would you want MVP doing his Matrix shit or him being mauled by Rory or Douglas Lima? Well, uh, I think you can have both. Oh, for crying out loud, what is happening? Um, okay, so a couple of things. This is not fair to David Rickles. Now, I'm not here to tell you that David Rickles was the best thing since sliced bread, but David Rickles had a recent win over Adam Piccolotti. Adam Piccolotti is a very good, young, uh, talented fighter. Black belt in jiu-jitsu has a wrestling background out of AKA. Uh, he just got back on the winning track himself, I think, at Bellator 198 or so, something like that. I can't remember. Or maybe it was 199. Whatever it was, he's a very, very good fighter, and and Rickles beat him. 
Um, Rickles had a few bad losses in there, but not as many as people think. I think he had four coming into that fight. And yes, one of those was a tremendous knockout loss to Michael Chandler, but so what? Lots of guys have bad losses to Michael Chandler. That doesn't tell you a whole lot. So to me, I'm, am I telling you he's an amazing, oh my God, Hall of Fame fighter? No, I'm not saying that. But I don't think it's fair to say that he's the same kind of fighter that he was defeating before. Um, th that was, to me, a step up, and that was the best fighter he's fought to date, including over Fernando Gonzalez. I don't really agree that this was some kind of continued trend of what he'd been doing at all. This was a clear step up. Now, your point might be, okay, is he fighting the elite at Bellator? No, no, I don't know that he was doing that necessarily, but, um, but that this is the same old, same old? Mm -mm, not true. Now, um, what would I like? At this point, I think beating David Rickles is one of those kinds of things where, yes, now you need to step up. Now you need to step up because we've seen how he does against guys who are not very good or pretty good. Now we need to see him against the guys who are the real deal, right? The very, very best ones. The ones who are truly battle-tested and have succeeded through being battle-tested against other elite competition. That part, I think, is a little bit missing. David Rickles was kind of that in-between, um, between the very, very, very best and then you know the rest of that division. He was not quite there, but he's no easy challenge. So, sure. The thing is, you want to build a guy up to the point where there's enough interest in him, and then you kind of have to see what he really has. It was like the Conor McGregor slow roll. I remember there was a lot of consternation about him fighting Dennis Seaver and like, what did it really mean? And in the end, to me, it was just the UFC buying time. It was a good enough fighter against a guy who was on the rise. If you buy this guy just enough time, he'll be good enough by the point where, you know, once you reach that top 10, that top five, you don't have a choice but to fight your contemporaries. And at that point, they can't hide you. They can't give you anything else. And so to me, I think they saw that McGregor was very, very talented, but was still developing his game. Not bad by any stretch. You can't go from bad to like awesome. You can go from very good and very skilled, but needing more time to being incredibly special like McGregor has become. And I think that's the the path that they saw him on and they wanted to see it play itself out. And, uh, and, and by doing that, they gave him enough time to let his skill set mature against the right kind of opposition. They played it exactly correct. So by the time he fought Jose Aldo, he needed 13 seconds, right? It's that kind of thing. Um, and I'm not saying that that's going to be the future for MVP. I don't know how he's going to do against Paul Daly or anybody else, but my hunch is that he can't beat Liam or uh, Rory, but you never know. Number one. And number two, um, I, I think that's the path he's on. Build him up enough, then see how he does. Now he there's really not much turning back he can or should do, and um, and so that I think that's where he's headed now. In terms of being a different kind of fighter, where you just look good against Nub's competition, there's a career in that too. I don't think that's what MVP wants, but you can do that. You would have to be a lesser skilled fighter to get away with it, but I can think of some that are like that, like uh, Mazukazu Imanari, these sort of like gimmicky fighters. You know, they were doing stuff like that for a while. You know, he was a leg lock specialist before leg locks were really a thing in MMA. And he would take some and he would lose some. But he was always one of these like, real dangers that was kind of interesting and it was flashy. Um, it, it wasn't beating scrubs all the time, but it, it was that kind of a bit where you just sort of knew what you were going to get. It was either going one way or the other with him. And sometimes it went to his, to his way. So, uh, so Yeah. I just don't, I just, you need to be very fair about this to uh, David Rickles because I didn't, I don't think it's true to say, oh, he's the same as defeating no Sean Burrell. Mm -mm. No, it's not.
Someone says, I couldn't agree more with the other uh, commenter. I was at Bellator 200, and Pryor was not a fan of MVP's antics at all, but being there, I love seeing his qualities as a showman. He won me over big time. He took the atmosphere from a four to a nine and got everyone up for the main event. He certainly did. For me, there is a place in MMA um, for guys like that. Thoughts on David Rickles' verbal submission mid-fight after taking limited damage. I was watching Bellator 200 on Friday, Rickles versus MVP, and Rickles was getting completely outclassed by MVP in striking, but it wasn't like a Poirier-Gaethje amount of damage being taken by Rickles, and he called the fight off in the second round. I was slightly dumbfounded that a guy would throw in the towel like that, but part of my respect for his awareness to see he was outclassed. Yeah, what's the point? You want to just keep getting your ass whipped? Save it for another day, man. Plus, he's not one of these guys who's on like a title hunt. You know, I, we have this thing about we're just going to fight until the death. To me, it was like, I think he knew his problems. He couldn't see out of his eye. He knew it was fucked up. He's a guy who, by the way, has taken big shots in his career before and been flatlined. If he can avoid that, he will. It's going to put a limit on how far he can go even further, you know, uh, in terms of and in terms of what you can expect from him. But trust me, David Rickles was known as the caveman for many years for a reason because he would go in there and he would fight balls out and have these crazy wars. And I don't think he's just interested in doing that anymore. Someone says, I'm the type of fight fan that I appreciate grit and toughness more than skill many times. And you want someone to dig deep and will themselves to the end. Throwing in the towel with such visibly minimal damage taken. You don't know how minimal it was. Rickles took some heat over social media. From who? From people who've done better? Whatever. Taking heat on social media is almost a badge of honor. Well, Skip Bayless notwithstanding, but okay. Someone says, I thought MVP looked very good. Rickles tried to press him against the cage, but the speed and timing of MVP was way too much. This was the first time I watched MVP and felt like he could actually do it all at a really high level. A eulogy for the ultimate fighter. Dana White recently confirmed the next tough season will be the last. It is probably long overdue, probably. Uh, and there are tons of reasons why tough kind of sucks. Kind of. But when someone, something passes away, it is common courtesy to dwell on the good memories. First of all, we don't know it's dead yet. So I'm not going to give her a eulogy until I know. What are your favorite tough memories? Not watching them. Season after season of not watching tough have been my favorite tough memories. Griffin versus Bonner. Uriah Hall spinning ninja. Rampage smashing the locker room door. Chael versus Vanderlei. Other good memories. No. Season one. Calling Chris Lieben a fatherless bastard. Which not that I in and of itself that I like. But that uh, it led to some pretty hilarious antics back when hilarious antics mattered. I'll bury the I'll bury tough when I know it's dead for good. And until such time, I will slander it mercilessly. They call in me. Right. Next for the winner of Whitaker versus Romero. Hey, Luke, who do you see being up next for the Whitaker winner of Yoel versus Whitaker? Gastelum had a better record over the past three fights than Wyvin, but Wyvin is coming off of a victory over Kelvin. Under what circumstances might a rubber match for Yoel and Whitaker take place? Ooh, very controversial decision, draw, something like that. But to me, it's Kelvin. To me, it's Kelvin because uh, 
Um, I think Weidman can't fight. I think he's injured, right? So I don't even know the, how, how eligible he would be. And it would depend on what the kind of turnaround, I guess, they would want for the winner of Yule versus Whitaker um, here in a couple of, well, a week and a half or so, something like that. Uh, I guess it would depend on that. But uh, Kelvin's young and ready. And I think a striking bout, if it is ends up being Whitaker, between Whitaker and Kelvin, uh, would be awesome. Plus, Wyman already was champion and had, you know, uh, let's let's see some new faces. The Weidman win over Kelvin is a big problem because you can see him being able to repeat it too. But at the same time, it's like, uh, I, I would like to see an interesting matchup. Don't you want to see two young guys in the division? Kelvin and, and um, Robert? Any word on Cain Velasquez? No, none, man. All quiet on the Western front on that one. I have not heard a thing. It's funny. I hadn't even thought about that. Wow. What is up with Cain Velasquez? Cain. Um, someone says, I was going to ask him the same. Let's talk about him returning in July. No, there's no chance that's true. He, I mean, let's see if he returns this year. Forget July. Darren Till versus Wonderboy Aftermath. Till missed weight for the second time in six UFC fights. Any suggestions on how to improve the way the UFC deals with situations like this? Yeah, stop having early wins. In the Liverpool Q&A, Dan Hardy suggested a point deduction, and Aljamain Stoy suggested doing the same-day weigh-ins as they do in wrestling. So you can't do, like, Till, who enters the cage as a 205 or at weighing at 170. What's your take on this? This comes up all the time. I don't know how many ways I can say this. There is a reason they don't do same-day weigh-ins in MMA. Um, and they might do it in certain parts of the world in boxing, but I don't think they do that in boxing either. It's because if your brain is not properly hydrated and you take a strike to it, including multiple strikes to it, your chances of serious and significant injury skyrockets. Now, you can take some of those same kinds of injuries uh, in wrestling. You can get slammed on your head, all kinds of things. But wrestling does a lot of other things during that um, collegiate year, if that's what he's referring to, NCAA wrestling. There's a lot of things during that year to ensure that they find the appropriate weight class for you. They do hydration testing so that by the time that mat side weigh-ins or same-day weigh-ins comes along, they have a very pretty clear sense of how much weight you have cut, what kind of weight you have maintained, so that rehydration is a little bit more of a formality versus a necessity, right? Um and they have more, you know, they, they, there's just a lot better protections taking early through the course of the season so that this is not as big of an issue. You cannot do that with guys all over the world. It's simply not possible. Um, I don't know. I don't know why we uh, can't call a spade a spade on this one and just say that the early weigh-ins, I don't know that we have to necessarily get rid of them. But uh, Matt Brown has spoken about this one at length where we have changed the nature of the weigh-ins and in his mind disrupted their circadian rhythm of fighters and certainly if you know decide the circadian rhythm the rhythm generally of fight week so everything the weigh-ins have changed but not everything else in correspondence with the weigh-ins in terms of doing media eating food sleeping the whole nine none of that's been changed so it creates this this incredible amount of uh new stress um to me it would be something like um and the other argument people make as well, make the penalties more. You, know, you lose you lose a point, you know, um, if you, every, every pound you're over, right? But people ask yourself, why don't commissions do this? 
Now, partly, I understand that I've been making this argument too that commissions are terrible. But okay, why don't why why for example, why doesn't California do this? The commission that has done the best work with their ten point plan to curb weight cutting. Why don't they do that? Right? Ask yourself. Because if you set up enough penalization ahead of time, somebody will do everything they can, including the most dangerous circumstances imaginable, to cut weight. Now, if you want to say, well, now we have different protocol. We're weighing you in on Tuesday when you get there. We're following you on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. We're going to make sure that as you cut, if you get to a certain point, we're just going to wave it off no matter how close or how far you are. We're just going to reach a certain medical limit. Then I'd be more open to it. If there was a lot more scrutiny and frankly, surveillance on fight week, then you could make that argument. But the reason why commissions don't do that is because you incentivize people to take extraordinary risks to avoid penalty. So the penalties have to be uh, it not light exactly, but not so onerous that you force people into desperate situations. My, my feeling would be if you miss weight, I don't care if it's by a pound. I don't care if it's by um, whatever it is. If you miss weight for a fight, your next fight's a weight class up, period. And end of story. Unless there is some kind of truly aggravating circumstance, whatever that might be. But in almost, if you, uh, how about this? If you miss it beyond three pounds, you have to go up to the next weight class, right? So something like that. So if you miss it by a pound, all right, well, whatever. But that's it. You're up. So to me, it's like, oh, when's, what, what, what is the next weight class of Mackenzie Dern's fight? You wouldn't even have to worry about it. You know what it would be. They would have to earn the right to get back down. Something like that. Um, and then, of course, you know, the 30% and the 30% not going to the commission, going to the fighter. Oh, I'm fine with all that. But, you know, there's one points or same-day weigh-ins. The one-point thing, I think you could work if you had all the other factors in play. The same-day weigh-ins does not work absent what NCAA wrestling actually does in terms of all the other precautions that they take. And without that, it doesn't work. Someone just has TJ Dillashaw. TJ Dillashaw is one of the best pound-for-pound -pound fighters and most underappreciated. I don't know what you mean, since I appreciate him a great deal. Do we think others underappreciate him? I don't know. Do you think people have not gotten over the whole Conor McGregor snake thing? Jesus, I pay so little attention to that, I couldn't tell you. What do you make of his style of fighting? I like it. How do you think the rest of his career will pan out? Well, what are these questions? Do you think he will beat Cody in the rematch? Probably. Probably. But that was a close one in that early stage, too. Do you think we'll see a Cruz rematch? I don't know what's going to happen with Cruz. Um, he might get back to title contention, depending on how things go, but he's got to heal himself. And then we'll see what happens after that. I'd love to see it, but I don't know what, I don't know what the future holds. What bantamweight do you think has the best style to beat him, Garbrandt? Uh, let's see. Dillashaw doesn't accept that the role of a, of a professional athlete is that of an entertainer. This, I'll do my talking in the cage attitude has kept him from properly marketing himself and made him hard to get excited about if you're not a hardcore fan. I still cringe when I think of those interviews he did with Cruz. Where Don was telling him, you have to talk, dummy. That's why we're sitting here with microphones and cameras facing us. And then someone responds, yeah, but not everybody is a talker. I'd much rather deal with somebody actively not participating in something they are bad at than trying to fake it. Yes, thank God, please. Not everyone has the skills, right? 
TJ Dillashaw could probably train. T Imagine if TJ Dillashaw quit MMA today and said next year and the year after that, Mundials, he wants to compete and see if he can win in the gi um, in jiu-jitsu. Could he do it? I don't think he could. The guys who are doing that and winning that in his weight class, not only is that all they do, that's all they've been doing for the last 15, sometimes 20 years. Right, it's they have such a head start and such a feel for that level of competition that it simply wouldn't be possible. You can't just do everything, um, and that's a bit of a different scenario where you're talking about transitioning over. But I'm pointing out, not everybody has the skills to talk. It's a skill, and not everybody wants to do the work to develop it either. Um, the only thing is, if you're not going to do that, if you're not going to do that, then complaining about the pay gets a little bit wonky. Because the two are tied together. Or you can complain about that fact. But are these guys... And TJ Dillashaw did the double M, triple A thing. But what's happened since then? So it's all kind of connected. Someone says the Dillashaw versus Garbrandt slash Team Alpha Male rivalry sells itself. I hope they play it up in the promotion for this card. I'm not exhausted with that. I'm so exhausted with that. To me, it's about those two guys and how they match up at this point. The Team Alpha Male thing is like, whatever. What? Oh, Jesus. Oh, we got some ESPN deal uh, stuff. You want to hear this? Oh, here we go. ESPN's 10 linear events will be treated as premium events like UFC on Fox events are. The ESPN Plus events will have a similar pacing to TV cards as they will be televised internationally. The pay-per-view model will remain in the, the same with ESPN Plus added as an additional distributor. So I guess you can buy it through ESPN Plus. Main cards will begin at 10 p.m. as they do now. Fuck! ESPN Plus deal gives flexibility for international shows to start in that market's primetime rather than catering to a North American primetime. Well, that's good. Oh, God. I mean, I guess if they did a four-fight main card, I, I could live with it. But, oh, my God, if they do a six-fight main card, kill me, sweet Jesus. Kill me now, Lord. I'd I, I honestly rather just die <laughs> than do another television deal with six-fight main cards and FS1 pacing. They have sucked the will to live out of me. Oh, my God, please tell me that's not what they're going to do. Please, Jesus. You know what I bet it is they're going to do? I bet they're going to do five fight main cards, like a pay-per-view. So it'll be not as bad, but still pretty bad. Nobody, I'm telling you, man, nobody wants to service the fan anymore. All the content is created for sponsors and themselves. All the content is created just to make sure we can stuff in as much orc imagery from bright bullshit on Netflix. All of it is that. All of it is that. Golly. How many, how many monster energy logos and drinks and subliminal messaging can we pipe into the broadcast to make sure that, you know, uh, just before you off yourself from boredom, you, you down a fast big can of monster energy drinks and throw it across the room like a McGregor and Diaz press conference. I mean, Jesus Christ, they don't want to do anything to help the customer. 
It's unbearable, man. Ugh. ACB. What do you think of the talent coming out of ACB? Probably it might be the best feeder league if you want to think of it that way in the world. Especially given the regional. Like who's developing better talent, ACB or one? Pretty clear answer to me. Are you a frequent watcher of ACB? I am not. As a fellow Star Wars geek, have you seen Solo yet? No, I have not. I meant to go, but uh, I just haven't yet. I might go Sunday or something. Saturday, I'm going to a rugby game, Wales versus South Africa here in D.C. That should be kind of fun. Um, but no. Turning down a fight, Luke, MMA is plagued with athletes missing weight. In all other sports, if you miss your agreed-upon limit, you don't compete. In all other sports, if you miss your agreed-upon limit, you don't compete. I don't know what that means. What limit do you have to match as a linebacker in the NFL? I mean, you can be whatever weight you want. Or is there some, you be speaking like limits generally or something? I don't know what that means. Where does Wonder Boy sit after this mess? Uh, probably still in the top five. The guy had to make a trip across the pond, face a guy who missed weight on the two-hour deadline, then was pressured to agree to face a guy who is technically standing in another weight class to save the main event. He is not standing in another weight class to save the main event. He would have to have been um, 185 on weigh-in day. And you're going to say, well, he was that the day after. Right, but that's okay. It's the day of that you can't be 185. Like, Dern was at 123. If she'd been two pounds more, then it would have been in another weight class. So he wasn't in another weight class. I, I acknowledge that he missed weight, but what's it going to take for these athletes to turn these fights down? Um, not having unbelievable consequences? I mean, we're talking about a world where guys sit on the shelf for months on end for turning down fights. Uh, a world where... Um, I don't know. Um, if you try to negotiate with them on weigh-in day, you get you get you get nada. Look what Anthony Pettis did; he got nothing for it. And Leslie Smith got her walking papers. I don't think it was exactly related to just that, but nevertheless, I'm sure it didn't help. And then you have Vera Rodriguez saying no. So why would you turn on a fight if you're one of these guys? And you could say, well, that's terrible that the UFC is doing this, right? Well, who's going to fix it? Oh, that's right. The fighters, the fighters will have to fix that. Yes. Mm. That's what it has to be, but they don't want to do anything about it. So <laughs> what am I supposed to say? MMA, it's not MMA media is talking. It's not like this is some secret. Y'all are talking about it. I'm talking about it. Everyone knows about it. It's a thing. Fighters know about it. I mean, I had these conversations with y'all on this chat for years. You hear the dogs going berserk. For years, I had these conversations. And uh, it didn't do nothing. In the words of terrible English, it did nothing. It accomplished zero. So I'm happy to agree that that seems punitive and unfair. I'm happy to acknowledge that this is, uh, I feel bad for these fighters. I really do. But 
So there you go. Someone says, uh, only sad, obsessive Star Wars fans, Star Wars fans, excuse me, complain about the new Star Wars movies. They're actually great movies. People need to let go of the past. I agree, sir. And yet ticket sales are getting worse and worse. Well, that's not quite true. It, the Han Solo one did uh, relatively poorly, but uh, Last Jedi did well. And the reviews are terrible. Don't, the reviews for The Last Jedi were good. It was the fan reviews that were bad. Maybe they're not great movies after all. Maybe some of the criticism is actually valid, huh? Who would have thunk it? No. The Last Jedi was critically acclaimed. The, the, um, the dorks that like to go to Comic-Con and then watch robots shoot lasers in space, they didn't like The Last Jedi, but actually real movie reviewers did. I'll tell you who um, was sort of half in the bag on it. Speaking of that, you guys know what Red Letter Media is? They didn't like Last Jedi all that much, but they didn't hate it like everybody else did either. They were sort of like, eh, it wasn't all that great kind of thing. Um, but they're pretty hardcore uh, judges. You guys watch Red Letter Media on YouTube? Incredible, incredible YouTube channel. Sometimes I agree with them. Sometimes I think they go a little bit too far. Sometimes I don't quite understand exactly their the nature of their criticism. I'll say this in their defense. I thought one of the best points they made, and I thought it was so true, the all-female Ghostbusters remake was just cancer. I mean, it was unbearably stupid. Uh, it was stupid in the way it was thought about. It was stupid in the way that it was constructed. The jokes were dumb. All of that was bad, and it was they tried to shield criticism of a quite obviously terrible movie behind the idea that you had an all female cast and you had an all female cast and sort of these like STEM related occupational roles. And people really went to the mat to try to defend this movie that was just totally indefensible. I mean, the, the, the Ghostbusters remake was an abhorrent, and it wasn't even a remake, it was a soft reboot, right? But the boys at Red Letter Media, I thought, made an excellent point. Did you guys see the movie Annihilation with Natalie Portman? Now, I'm no big Natalie Portman fan. I one time was behind her at, um, God, what's the place in the village you can get a, a falafel sandwich for $2? It's right next to the Comedy Cellar. Um, I forget the name of the place. She was in front of me in line. She's about four foot three. I mean, she's a tiny, tiny little person. Uh, in any case, um, here is a movie that is smartly written, creepy, um, ambiguous, but uh, symbolic sci-fi, had an all-female cast that didn't beat you over the head with the fact that it was an all-female cast, expertly acted. They, they all, all those ladies did an incredible job. It all seemed to work and flow. There was no issue about it. They would, they, I couldn't have picked better cast members than the ones they had. I mean, maybe you could have picked someone better than Natalie Portman, but she did a great job in this particular context. As I mentioned, the writing was superb. The script was superb. The imagination of it was superb. And what and it was STEM-related occupations for all the women involved. And what happened in the end? It flopped at the box office because nobody cared. So the movie that was designed to sell toys and other related paraphernalia for um, losers who want to watch robots shoot lasers in space because it's sort of a similar crowd, they they got up in arms for criticism of a perfectly terrible movie, and yet none of them went and watched the actually good movie that actually accomplished all of the goals they were hoping the terrible movie never came close to achieving. So that just tells you how bankrupt all of that criticism was. Go watch Annihilation. It is an excellent movie. And shouts to Red Letter Media. Although I don't agree with some of the things they've said about The Last Jedi. Uh, all right. 
Someone says Thompson Till should have been a draw. Seems to me that a major driver of scoring controversies is the prevailing belief opinion that rounds need a winner and fights need a winner. Uh, yeah, that's how sports works. I think this is a foolish way of approaching fights. I'm not sure why you would think that, and especially of judging fights. Sometimes a round is uneventful and pretty much even. A fighter should not win a round unless the performance makes it clear to the viewer that the fighter exerted greater control over the action and did more damage than their opponent. Once again, somebody who does not understand how fights are scored. If a round is close, or if you can make an argument for either fighter winning a round, then neither fighter won the round. That is not how scoring works. Why do most fans and the powers that behave as though it's somehow beyond the pale when scoring a fight to say, neither of you did enough to take the round? You can do it that way, but that's not exactly the same thing you said before. And both of you did a lot and balanced each other out. That's not how fights are scored. I get that a fight is supposed to tell us who is the better fighter on a given night, but sometimes there just isn't a definitively better fighter in about. I can agree with that. So you're going back and forth here a little bit. Why is it so hard for people to accept that? It's not. Why would people rather split hairs than say a fight didn't answer the question, who's the better fighter? Because that's not how fights are scored. As I mentioned before, it's not merely compartmentalized on rounds. That's not really the, the, the sum total of the issue. The issue is also that you have the compartmentalization of criteria. The criteria of scoring, where effective um, grappling and scoring is one, and then if and only if you deem that to be even, you go down to effective aggression. And if and only if that is even, you go down to effective cage control. And if and only if that is even, you get a 10-10 round. Yes, that is how it is scored. So... Here's the point. Why is it scored like that? Why do they bring it up like that? I don't like that compartmentalization, but there is one benefit to that system, which is that you are finding ways to make sure one fighter takes the round. You are you are breaking the criteria up such that, and in such a way, you're not just breaking it up like, oh, we'll evenly count effective striking and cage control. They're not even. One's not even relevant unless one is a tie. So you're doing that to create tiebreakers so that you don't come to a tie. To come to a 10-10 round, and you can come to one of those, it's possible. I think that fourth round you could have gone 10-10. I wouldn't have done it, but it's possible. You could have done that. You could have said, uh, for all those reasons, effective striking was even, effective aggression was even, effective cage control was even. I don't think that's true, but I guess it's possible you could have come to that conclusion. But that's the only way you can do that, and, and then I guess you could have given the other rounds to one of the other two fighters, so it would have split two and then drew in the fourth. Uh, that's how you do it. But simply saying, well, this one did better than that one. What is the word you used? A fighter should not win around unless the performance makes it clear to the viewer that the fighter and exerted greater control over the action. That is not how a fight is scored and did more damage than their opponent. That's the initial way a fight is scored, but that's not the only way if that's equal. This is my point once again. Folks seem to not understand how a fight is scored, and you can't blame them because it's a well-written question. This person is clearly literate. They clearly care. They clearly watch. This is not somebody who is uh, uh, some troll. This is a reasonable question. And if reasonable people think that a fight should be scored in the totality of the way in which they experience it, maybe the striking, excuse me, maybe the judging criteria should match that. It should match experientially the way you take in a fight. They're, they're setting it up so that you don't have to give the 10-10s. And maybe it's because the commission, maybe this is what you're driving at, the commission's don't want to see 10 to 10 10s or draws because it's un unsatisfying. I'm sure there's pressure that way, but it's also set up in the scoring criteria so that it's, it would be very difficult to come by a fight that way. Very, very difficult. 
All right, it is 2.15. Let us go to the Twitter machine. You can shoot me a tweet at LThomasNews and then uh, uh, hashtag chat rappers. I don't get some of these jokes. Someone says, couldn't agree more. Annihilation was phenomenal. Just watched it with my 15-year-old son, and we were both blown away. Smart movie, giving us room for two series to what the ending may have been hinting at. Telling you, go see it. Uh, By the way, was the falafel stand Mamoon's falafel? Uh, Yes, Mamoon's was it. $2, man. You can get like this crate. They give give you two like um, falafel cakes, and they put like tahini in it, and like, oh, it's the best. And it's like just two bucks, bang. It's like the soup Nazi place where like, what do you want? What do you want? Because you can get more than just that there, but not not on many things. But like you just have to tell them, oh, I want the falafel sandwich. They put it together like in like in three seconds. Throw it at you, cash, boom, you're on your way. Like you got to be ready to go. It's like you ever seen those girls on the playground doing like the with the with the two jump ropes? You see the people getting into it like this, trying to trying to find their timing. That's how you got to be at my moons, man. You got to get in there and you got to get out. Uh all right. Someone says the knee kicks landed by Till, I think uh, in I think the second round were, in my opinion, the most impactful strikes landed all fight. If you give him that round and the fifth, it's very easy to get a 48-47 Till scorecard. Sure. Okay. I wouldn't argue with that too much. I have to go back and watch the second, but uh yeah sure i can i can go with that uh, how do you see rda versus colby going down if it went anything like rda versus uh number he's going to get wrestled to death so the real question here is it's, you know how this is going to go either colby's going to win on wrestling or he's not right so um let's see no mention of nick diaz yet on the show what do you think i think that i don't have an opinion because he is innocent until proven guilty and his uh, supporters have vehemently protected him, which you would imagine that they would. But um, we don't know any of the details of the case yet. It's unfortunate, but I'm going to reserve an opinion until I have the facts of the case. If it turns out the way it was true, then we will uh, annihilate him here. But if it is not true, then we will exonerate him here. So we'll just see what happens. How did Kamaru Usman and Kevin Lee do better ratings than a hyped-up Darren Till? Because Darren Till fought in the middle of the day, and there's somebody here at my door, and my wife. For some reason, like it's quiet all day, right until I want to do my chat, and then it's just a party. Uh, I disagree on the quality of The Last Jedi, and I don't classify myself as a Comic-Con nerd. Maybe you should. I'm teasing. Rogue One and Force Awaken were pretty good, but The Last Jedi was poorly written. The Last Jedi had problems. Uh, I would agree with that. It's certainly, there, there's been just plenty of fair criticisms to make of it, but that it was some sort of abomination, I think is just insane. It was just way too Disney-fied. That is one I can agree with. The character Rose was a tragedy. Uh, also, the Red Letter guys made a good point about Rogue One, uh, which was that it's the best... If you think... You ever seen those fan movies that people make on YouTube of like Star Wars movies? There'll they'll just be some like 20-minute short that fans will make, and they'll be like surprisingly good um, imagery and the way it's shot and some sort of like, you know, unique storyline. Uh, if you think of Rogue One as a fan movie, it's the best fan movie ever made in the Star Wars universe, which I can agree with. 
Um, oh my god. Let's let's just let's just see what's happening. Let me just ask my wife, you know, is there some reason why you hate this live chat? All right. Luke, would you personally like to see champs of different promotions fight for the true world champion rights uh, and creating a new higher tier? Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't? Uh, let's see. What do you think of Pusha T's Daytona? I unfortunately have not heard Daytona. Can you believe that yet? I realize it's only seven tracks and it just comes over like 30 minutes or something like that. I'm not sure. It's very, very short, almost like an EP, but it, it is an LP. But um, but yes, I am I am late to the party on that one. I did hear story of Adid, uh, was it Adidon or Adidon or however you pronounce it properly, Adidon. I did hear that. Oh, I heard that. <laughs> and I relished in it. If you watch this live chat, I have slandered Drake. And I couldn't understand why people who claim to like hip hop would like somebody who's okay at rapping, not great, and then does all this other nonsense that couldn't possibly be in any way interesting to me. Uh, and Pusha T's got his limits as well, like every uh, rapper does. But uh, you know, I mean, if you've listened to anything that he's done over the course of his career, it's pretty obvious that he is a vicious MC and uh, pulls no punches. And um, and then yeah, you know, I, I was uh, in college in that sort of tidewater region when clips had their big breakout and i can tell you it was it was um you know it was a big deal certainly worldwide uh, but especially in that part of the country and uh yeah i'm a big clips fan i'm sorry that the other brother is is malice is too busy uh doing whatever he's doing with the church but pusher t didn't let his foot off the gas i can tell you that hashtag hell hath no fury yeah, and I don't know how Drake can even come back from that. I mean, we're talking about... And by the way, it was only a three-minute track, the story I've added on. He clearly has another round in the chamber should he need it. So, shouts to Pusha T. True or false? Whitaker beats Romero again. True. Dillashaw stops Garbrandt again. I'll say false. MVP destroys Daily. False. Ooh, that would be fun, though. Not that I'll dislike Daily, just for the chaos. It wouldn't... Um, not, not that I dislike Daly. I like him a lot, but just for the chaos that would create. Mackenzie Duran will miss weight again. True. Vasil Lomachenko fights Manny Pacquiao at the end of the year. Well, with that torn labrum, I don't know. That's going to be hard to figure out. Who fights in the UFC first, MVP or Chandler? Ooh, MVP. Is it just me or are foreign MMA fans of Brazil, the UK, way more nationalistic about rooting for their countrymen? Yes. Maybe Americans are more regional, local about our fandom for guys. Yes, it's very true. If you go to Texas and there is some kind of, you know, Dallas fighter or something, if you go to Dallas, there's a Dallas fighter, they would be. But, like, I mean, I live on the East Coast. You know, somebody being from Oregon, unless you're competing in, like, the Olympics, in which case they do represent you. But, like, someone from Oregon, I got nothing against Oregon, but it's like... It doesn't, I don't feel anything for that. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything for me. So it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to, to know. True, false. Woodley will be the favorite against RDA. True. Till, 
true. Usman, true. Against all of them, true. Covington would be the underdog against Woodley, true. RDA, I don't know if he is against RDA. Till, I don't know. And Usman, probably. No, not against Usman. Wonderboy never fights for a title again. True. RDA versus Connor happens at welterweight for the title. False. Till is a top contender and could be a champ, but I don't see him as a star. I've enjoyed his fights in the UFC even prior to his Cowboy win. I remember feeling that it factor when introduced to Connor Ronda, but I haven't felt it with Till. What am I missing? Well, that last win didn't do him a lot of favors. That was one problem. I think the other problem is we have to live in an era where some guys like, um, um, you know, Anthony Joshua is a big star in the UK. And I'm not saying he's not a big star here, especially if he fought Deontay Wilder here. But let's say he fought a fight in Seattle. Would it be as big of a fight in Seattle as it would be in the UK? Now, it's an exaggerated example because I would imagine even if he fought in the United States, he'd fight on the East Coast so that folks in the UK could travel if he fought in Vegas. It's not like those wouldn't be big deals, but there also is something to be said for the fact that these guys are regional superstars. These are these are guys who are right there in that pocket. They're big everywhere maybe, but they're really big in their in their space. So Darren Till, it takes a while to build celebrity. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. I, I thought that he waited too long to fight after the Cerrone bout. I thought he needed to get right back on it, but um, he got the win, however controversially. And so we'll see what happens, but we might also have to entertain the fact that somebody can be really, really big in their home country and not big enough somewhere else. Um, let's see. Will Bale stay with Real? That I don't know. What about Ronaldo? Ronaldo can't go. Where's he going to go? Like, who can pay his release clause? Nobody. Um, he's not going to go to United as long as Mourinho's there. So where, where's he going to go? Barcelona? Like, who's he's not going to go anywhere. Uh, I'm not saying it's not possible, but it's pretty close. Um, Bale, on the other hand, is a different ca- uh, scenario because he can go to United. He can go back to the Premier League. He can play in uh, that kind of a league, and uh, he could be a big star there. So uh, we'll see. We'll see. what. I hope he doesn't, but we'll see. It'll be interesting. The world is your platform, Luke. Tell us all you really think about the Vegas Golden Knights fans. Well, here's what I'll say. Um, if you're, if you live in Vegas, this is what I can't stand about Britt McHenry. Everything she says is wrong. Like literally everything she was like, Oh, all these bandwagon fans in Vegas, they're nothing but, um, they're nothing but, you know, they haven't had a team, but for 11 months, they're all bandwagon. Well, if you live in the city, that's your team, right? I mean, if, if you're a Vegas resident, you have not only the right, you should enjoy cheering for the team. I happen to think Las Vegas is the Dave and Busters of America. I I think it's everything wrong with this country. I detest that place more than I detest just about any other. But if you live in there, woe be unto you. Nevertheless, you can still cheer for your team. So that, to me, was insane. However, the amount of fellatio that is taking place, even on NBC on Monday, I I was like, every third sentence, did you know Vegas had a expansion team and this is their first season? And by the way, they're in the Stanley Cup Finals. Hey, did you guys hear that the expansion team is in the Stanley Cup? By the way, Vegas has a hockey team, and wouldn't you know it, they're in the Stanley Cup Finals. Yeah, we know, Mike Tirico. Move it along. My God. It was like, okay, we get it. And And everyone can think this is some great story. It's not nearly as good as the story of Leicester City at 5,000 to 1 winning the Premier League. Sorry, it's not, especially with the way they drafted 
the Las Vegas team. So it ain't even close to that. And everyone who's around these parts, and you can dismiss it if you want, fine, it's a free country, but I don't see how on earth a 20-year drought with one of the greatest players to ever play the game, getting maybe his only opportunity to win a Stanley Cup isn't significantly more endearing than whether or not you can, you know, the, the city that offers you cosmic bowling at scale uh, happens to catch a wave in their opening season. Who cares? Oh, who cares? There's a question from the... Someone says, you were staticked out of the Real Madrid thing. Did you basically say that you were like the European version of a Pats fan? Yes, sure. Whatever the saltiness of your tears requires you to say, I will drink them up like Cartman drank up Scott Tennerman's. Um, thoughts on Hatsuhiyoki's shockingly disappointing UFC run. Such high hopes for his talent and couldn't get it together. Solid competition, nerves. I have to go back and look at his run, but... I just remember him having some of the same problems in terms of fight IQ. He was obviously a wizard on the ground, but would not necessarily fight to his strengths a lot of times. I think he was a little bit past it by the time he got in the UFC anyway. So there's a few things. Uh, movies to recommend from one of you guys. Brick, The Brothers Bloom, or Looper to bookend The Last Jedi. Uh, Ryan Johnson has sort of a short but spectacular filmography. Son and I just watched Brick and The Brothers Bloom. I've not seen that one. But I have seen Looper. Very good movie. Fun little movie. Uh, so give that a look. All right. So we are out of time. I appreciate everyone watching. Sorry about the initial complications. But, you know, I had to fix it. And I did. Just, just you know, just one more reminder. This is to everybody who sent a picture of their favorite athlete from their favorite team. And it just didn't go your way. I know what it is like to lose. I know. Uh, <laughs> I can't do the whole Thanos speech. You know, the sound of inevitability. You can run from it, you can dread it, but destiny arrives all the same. Or should I say, we have. All right, thank you guys so much for watching. I will leave this alone for the next full year. Appreciate it. Uh, enjoy your weekend. Monday Morning Analyst will be back. Enjoy Utica on Friday. Till next time, stay frosty. <laughs>